A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Matthew Wright Show on Crucible of Broadcast Excellence. Talk Radio. Put it on and keep it on. Too busy to catch us on the afternoons on Talk Radio. Too many children to care for. Too many jobs to manage. Well, never fear. Help is here in the shape of the Matthew Wright Podcast, where we cut down three hours of entertainment and enlightenment every afternoon into tiny, bite-sized morsels just for you, you busy so-and-so. So sit back and enjoy the best of the Matthew Wright Show here on Talk Radio. MPs are, are calling for the Church of England to be stripped of its right to appoint 26 bishops, the Lord's spiritual, as they're known, to Parliament's less-than-democratic second chamber. Uh, fed up with the dated religious favouritism, humanist and atheist MPs and peers are demanding reforms that would spell the end of the Anglican Church's automatic block booking in the upper house. <laughs> I like the language, that's Yeah, great. well, it's what it is, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, rep- it's so discriminatory, isn't it? Because no other religion has, has, has a free seats at the table, do oh, they? No, it's, it's, it's definitely outdated, it seems to me. In a, a, a report due to be published tomorrow, uh, the all-party parliamentary humanist group will point out that the only other country where clerics are ordained by Lord... Uh, by law, to have a role in the process of government is a uh, good old Iran. Uh, the report will also cite nine cases when the bishops' votes were the deciding factor in passing legislation that was directly beneficial to the Church of England. Just fancy that. Joining us now is the Director of Public Affairs and Policy at the Humanists UK organisation, Richie Thompson. Hello, Richie. Hello. Uh, it's anachronistic, isn't it? It's outdated to, that we automatically have 26 bishops to sit there allegedly to deal with the nation's spiritual matters. Uh, and in fact, they're uh, affecting legislation all the time, usually in favour of the Church of England. Yes, that's absolutely right. And uh, it, it, it's even worse than that in some ways, because not only are they able to uh, sit there um, in their own specially reserved benches um, and vote on things, um, but they actually, in fact, have privileges that even other peers don't enjoy. So, for example, by convention, if a uh, bishop uh, wishes to speak during a debate to perhaps interrupt another speaker, um, then um, the, the the general uh, way it works is that other peers are expected to give way to them. That's, and right. that's only the case with the bishops. Um, it, They've every, got God on their side, yeah, Richard. They've got God on their well. side. On earth. <laughs> Perhaps that's a, that's a rationale. Um, it's also the case that um, uh, in both chambers, uh, the proceedings of the day starts with an Anglican, pair, uh, Anglican prayer. In the House of Lords, that's taken by a bishop. 
And um, if you don't attend those prayers, then it may be uh, difficult um, to get a seat in any subsequent Can, debate. On, 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 sorry, on, on that point, Richie, and I, I am uh, neither of a, a religious persuasion nor am I am a monarchist. <laughs> so um, yeah. I, I'll, I'll play this as straight as I can, but... It, in essence, uh, our Queen is the nominal head of, of Parliament. Um, they work for her by convention. She doesn't intrude, except in Blackrod, etc., mm. etc. If we were to kick out the Lord Spiritual, we are fundamentally changing the conventions, the traditions that have bound this country together for hundreds of years. Well, that's so the argument goes according to some. Yeah. But of course, lots of different countries, lots of different European countries, for example, have an established church with the monarch at the head of it. Yes. Um, but they don't have um, clergy in their in their legislatures. Um, actually, um, the current arrangements for the bishops um, date from the 19th century as well. That's when it was yeah. put in the statute books in its current form. Um, so I don't think, you know... Uh, Maybe you don't want the Queen to be head of a Church of England anyway, but if you do want that, then you shouldn't see the bishops being there. Uh, it's just because she, she, she's the head of the Church of England and, and also the, the head of our country, the nominal head of our Parliament. So as long as you have a Queen as the, as the head of the Church of England, then as she heads our Parliament, then she, that also confers, I guess, um, Anglican spirituality uh, on what goes on down there. Well, in their minds. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, so, so the argument goes, but I, I just don't see why that has to follow. And it's not the case if you look at, for example, the Scottish Parliament or the Wales or Northern Ireland Assemblies, um, that you have similar arrangements there, um, or either the bishops or yeah. prayers. You don't have anything similar at all. And even if um, that may be, have been justified in the past, the fact of the matter is, nowadays, the UK um, is a diverse country yeah. um, where most people have no religion and many others belong to religions other than Christianity. Um, and Parliament is only really doing its best um, if it's able to reflect that diversity in terms of how it operates. Um, and that, I think, makes it all the more important that these reforms now um, take place. OK, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go um, devil's advocate now, citing a, another spiritual icon that I don't believe in, uh, the devil. Uh, but I'm going to play, play along. So devil's advocate here. Um, Kevin, what was it, 834? 834. 834 people yeah. in the House of Lords. I reckon the House of Lords could function just as well with 100, maybe 150 people in it. So I would suggest, Richie, that what we're looking at here is a diversion, that the Lord's spiritual isn't an issue, it's just a distraction. What we really need to do is massively reform the House of Lords and start purging it of hundreds and hundreds of freeloaders who claim they're 350-odd or near on £350 a day in expenses. That the 26 Lord's spiritual is just a diversion. We need to get rid of hundreds of them. Well, I don't think that... Um uh, the authors of this report um, and the all-party parliamentary humanist group are claiming for a second that the bishops are the only problem in the House. <laughs> um, that's certainly not um, the case. Um, uh, people might point to other issues as well. Um, it's just the one issue that they focused on because, of course, being humanists, being sure, a humanist group, sure. that's what they're interested in. Um, but I would say that they are a problem. I think that the way this report talks about where they've changed votes, the particular privileges um, uh, and other matters besides, shows that they are an issue. And um, what, what is more, interestingly, the last two major proposals um, 
to reform the House of Lords in order to try and uh, reduce numbers. Well, the first of them actually increased the proportion of bishops in the chamber. Um, and, and the second of them didn't touch bishops at all. So again, it would have increased the proportion. So actually, um, um, if you think that the size of the House of Lords needs to be reduced, yeah. then you should be concerned that the bishops is the place where that might actually be um, possibly the most difficult to achieve and therefore perhaps needs a bit of extra focus. All right. OK, I'll get a l- last attempt at Devil's Advocate as Kevin throws his arms in the air. Yeah. OK, last attempt. I'm, I'm going to park my call there to, to slash and burn the numbers of people in the, in the House of Lords and say this, that perhaps we're better off sticking with the system, the antiquated system that we have, creaking as it does, uh, overweight with peers and, and the Lord spiritual, that we're better off having that than going down the route of many other countries and having an entirely elected second chamber, which opens the door to, to sort of party political dominance, and I suppose... And I always think this makes me sound so counterintuitive. I, I am a Democrat at heart, and yet there is something fabulously... There's something about the House of Lords that kind of works in a fabulously undemocratic way, and I sometimes... I think in my deep down in my, in my murky, stony-cold heart, Richie, I actually think the House of Lords works quite well. It just works... It's too big. <laughs> Right, well, then I'm going to say the same thing to you I said last time, which is that this report only focuses on the bishops. Yes. So yes. if you like the House of Lords more generally um, and um, don't want to see it um, have wider reform, then, um, you know, that, that's not what the, the authors of this report are calling for. They're literally just, just calling for the, the yeah. removal of, of the bishops, which hopefully um, even such individuals could agree um, would be a sensible and desirable reform. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. India's are going through a, a very interesting period. I mean, economically resurgent. Um, its, uh, its leader, uh, Modi, Narendra Modi, is um, quite a hardcore Hindu. I think I can safely say that. Um, he's of the view that... Uh, well, I suppose that all Indians are equal, but some are more Indian than others, uh, to borrow the uh, Orwellian phrase. Um, yeah. And I know that many of the country's 200 million Muslims feel quite put upon these days. Um, what can we deduce from uh, Trump's triumphant visit there? He's visited Agra, the Taj Mahal, and he's addressed the crowds, but I'm told as he was going, we love you, India, we love, we love America, blah, 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 the crowd started to drift away. The crowds have started to drift away, but American money is pouring in to India. Uh, to share his thoughts, I- I'm turning to Akhil Ahmed, um, a former commissioning editor at the BBC and Channel 4, who's just finished a programme for Al Jazeera called In Search of India's Soul, from Mughals to Modi. And he joins us on the line now. Akhil, good afternoon to you. Afternoon to you. Well, interesting times. Um, before we go on to Trump's visit, um, how would you describe Modi to our listeners? Well, he's an interesting character. He is that. He's the, the, yes, the, uh, the party that he's the head of, and obviously he's the Prime Minister of India, we've got the BJP, is definitely what they, it's referred to as a Hindutva party, which is kind of like a Hindu nationalist or Hindu yeah. first, as they would put it. And they have their origins in an organisation called the RSS, which, you know, starts out in the 1920s and 30s and has some kind of, you could argue, far-right kind of leanings, very pro-Hitler, and they were involved in the, a member of them was involved in the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi. That's right, that's so right. He's, they're coming from a space which is quite right-wing, so this is not some kind of populism that's happened in the last few years. This has been building up for decades. And Modi is at the head of that, and he's not the first BJP leader, and he's not the only person. It's not a one-man band. This is an organisation that has been built up over many years and it's in government, and it's just won its second election on the trot. So, but What's he actually doing, though? 
to, to, that, that, well, that, that, that makes so many Muslim people feel so put upon there? Well, he himself has a personal history because when he was the chief minister of Gujarat, one of the, one of the big states, the most populous states in India, um, there was a there were riot, riots took place many years ago, and effectively he is accused of not doing enough to stop them, and uh, many people lost their lives, particularly Muslims. And um, I think for many years he was actually banned from travelling to America because of that. So in that sense, he has a history. I, in government, he has made life very difficult, and his acolytes and Various different state legislators have made life difficult for Muslims. And in the last year, we've seen some particular big things. One is obviously Kashmir, which is the largest Muslim majority, which was the only Muslim majority state in India, which had a special kind of status because of, its, uh, because of the fact that it's claimed by both India and Pakistan and that the Kashmiris themselves generally are not in favor of being with India. So there's a huge military presence there. Um, he revoked that special, special status and said it's now going to be directly ruled from India and it's going to be part of the Indian, uh, a normal state as other states are, which is a huge statement to make. And alongside that, they've now just passed this uh, Citizenship Act, which effectively says people can be refugees from various countries coming into India, but not if you're a Muslim. Hmm. So, you know, people are not stupid. They know what's going on. It's very difficult now to be a Muslim in many parts of India. Uh, and even over things which we may think is trivial, such as the banning of the sale of beef, etc. But it goes beyond that. You know, in our film, we filmed with people who not only... It was not a case about of this industry being banned and ruining people's livelihoods. We filmed with people who had been killed because of vigilante groups and other organisations which had got hold of them and killed them for killing, for simply trading in, in, in beef. Gosh, okay. So, um, when is this on? Uh, the, 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 what the, the, this is Trump's over there at the moment. Oh, no, the documentary, documentary. on Jazeera. When, oh, when, when, when's your program yeah. on, Ahmed? Well, the series has just gone out, but it's actually oh. you go on aljazeera.com. Uh, oh, well, I, okay. I, I want to watch this. It's online. It's online. They okay. put it out online for everybody. It's a very different media organisation. Yes, it is. So it's just it just went out last. Week. It's a two-part series. Went out last week. And now it's available to watch online. Okay, now tell, tell us then what you make of um, Donald Trump. Um, it's a rare day that you see a, a, an American president uh, in India. Why is he there? Well, well, there is a bit of a there is a bit of a kind of like a grouping of people, you know, around the world of similar, <laughs> similar interests. You know, Netanyahu would be one of them. Yep. You've got Obama, you've got Valisero, whether you could argue to a lesser extent, you've even got Boris Johnson. Uh, yes, and you've got this kind of collection of people with particular kind of worldview. I definitely think there's a business case. Trump feels that, you know, India and China have never been great bedfellows. Uh, I think propping up India is a way, and, and doing more business with India is a, as a way, I think, of them kind of like countering the kind of aggressive growth of China, militarily, business-wise, etc. And then, of course, if you've got somebody who is very anti-Muslim, um, that's probably going to get go down quite well in, um, in Trump land. And, of course, Modi went to America last year, or they had what they called a Howdy Modi concert, uh, and Trump was the, was the main speaker at this a big event for Modi in America. So there's a bit of a loving, and I, you know, I think, being a cynic, I'd say the loving is because of the issues with China and, of course, with Trump, Trump and Modi probably sharing similar kind of simplistic views on, on Muslims a really, around the world. A really interesting observation that Trump may be looking at using India to play off or play against China. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. Right now, I want to look at uh, 
our higher education, the state of our universities, and explore this claim from one unnamed uh, university uh, governor, I think it is, uh, who claimed that uh, universities are under attack in the same way that monasteries folded when Henry VIII was on the throne. Um, what we're talking about is really uh, the claim from the uh, the uh, policy exchange think tank, which is a, a think tank set up by Michael Gove, so you can draw your own conclusions from that. Um, he says that, or the think tank says rather, that the nation has lost its faith in sneering universities. We're talking grade in inflation, fat cat pay, and a sneering attitude towards patriotism, apparently. That's not one I've been aware of before. Apparently, this has cost, uh, cost universities the trust of the nation. And uh, the policy uh, exchange think tank is attributing all of this to the uh, to a number, I think, 50 vice chancellors um, and senior governors that they interviewed uh, for this report. Now, there are some um, there are some bad news stories out there. I think we can all remember the, uh, the situation of Dame Glynis Breakwell, uh, Britain's highest paid vice chancellor before she retired. I think just on just under half a million a year. We've read about no platforming. We know about the lecturer's strike and such like. But it does seem perhaps a little strong to say the entire country has lost faith in its universities. So I'm going to turn to uh, Johnny Rich for guidance, a higher education specialist. And he joins us on the line now. Good afternoon, Johnny. Good afternoon. Um, what do you make of, uh, of the state of our universities at the moment? Has the country really lost faith in them? No, I don't think they have, and I don't think they should. I think that the international standing of our universities is amongst the highest in the world. People come from all over the world to attend our universities. More students are going to university than ever before. More school leavers want to go to university than ever before. They're doing outstanding research of a world-leading um, standard, solving global problems or trying to help solve global problems like the climate crisis, You know, doing research on the coronavirus, you name it. Our universities are one of the country's greatest assets. And if there has been any loss of faith with universities, it is the like of, likes of Michael Gove who say we have heard enough from experts. I'm afraid that's where you find experts <laughs> in universities. What? And if you don't like hearing from experts, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Would you, I mean, I, I was surprised, I mean, the, the, the sneering attitude towards patriotism, quoted in the, uh, that, that's the, in the second line of the article in The Times. Um, I've covered most university stories, both here and on television over the last 20 years, and I've not been aware of that one being right at the sort of top of, uh, of the nation's interest. The, the no platforming of the great and the good, uh, if they were to be uh, deemed to hold ideas or views that, uh, that uh, younger students may not be able to process or handle, that does seem to have caused uh, quite a stir within, within the fourth estate. Um, I, I think we, we, we can agree, can't we, Johnny, that the universities are certainly not beyond criticism. Absolutely not. Right. No, I, I think universities are extremely good at criticising themselves. It kind of makes them an easy target, is because the moment um, somebody raises a criticism about universities, universities, their default reaction is to go, hmm, now is that true, rather, yeah. than, rather than leaping to their own defence. Now, then, then it becomes down to people like me to leap to their defence to some extent. But even I wouldn't say that they are without fault or without flaws. Of course, there are faults and flaws. They're huge organizations and there are, there are problems, but they are not of the nature that this report um, defines. So, so can we um, extrapolate from 
those thoughts then, that, that the notion that our universities are about to come under attack for entirely party political reasons. I mean, the suggestion in the Times is that, uh, is that the Tories are, uh, will be considering some kind of new policies to, to appeal to those newly won northern seats, the Red Wall, which has now turned blue. Um, is there a bit of, a bit of politicising of our universities going on here? And that should be a cause for concern. There may be. Um, I think that there may be a tendency in the government to look at some of the institutions that we have in this country that might challenge the government, you know, the parliament itself, the judiciary, so you're thinking and the a, a, BBC and so on, and universities are among them. So organisations with a critical voice, you're, you're in specifically? Exactly. Okay. And they um, are the ways that... Um, we can exercise our um, strength to ensure that that critical voice is, um, is a little bit quieter, to say the least. And if you enjoyed all of that, make sure you tune in to The Matthew Wright Show with Kevin O'Sullivan every weekday from 1 on Talk Radio. <laughs>